how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 423, where I speak with actress Marae Enos. You know her from The Killing, World War Z, Sabotage, Gangster Squad, Big Love, Hannah, and now AMC's Lucky Hank, opposite Bob Odenkirk. Bob plays Hank, the English department chairman at an underfunded college who toes the line between a full-blown meltdown and the offbeat chaos of his personal and professional life. Marae plays his wife, Lily. This is one of three Lucky Hank interviews coming out this week, so be on the lookout for my chats with actor Diedrich Bader and creators Paul Lieberstein and Aaron Zellman in a few days. In this interview, we talk about dealing with rejection, feeling embraced by New York but not L.A., scripts you feel like should be yours, the unusual trajectory of the show The Killing, using the camera as your witness, and advice for writers to create roles actors desperately want to play. If it's your first time here, make sure to subscribe. You can also get my first book, Ink by the Barrel, Secrets from Prolific Writers, based on this very podcast over at brockswinson.com. That's the book and audiobook. I am the fourth of five kids, and my oldest brother, we moved to uh, Sugarland, Texas when I was four. And he was uh, 11 years older than me. So he was in high school already when we moved. And he found this wonderful theater department and, uh, and was a, just a wonderful actor. So from very little, I was watching my big brother tell these magical stories. And, um, and it, just paved, it just paved the way. I thought it was the, the kind of the coolest way you could spend your time around a bunch of smart, creative people telling stories. Um, yeah, and then from there, my mom found uh, the High School for the Performing and Visual Arts, which is a conservatory program, a magnet school in Houston. And, uh, and you know, at, at that point, it was, I didn't know if it was going to work out, but I knew I was going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Mm. And I ended up in New York City doing, doing theater for 10 years. And um and then, and then ultimately here to, to Los Angeles uh, for TV and film. So we don't have to go in this direction if you don't want to, but I read somewhere that you kind of grew up in the Church of Latter-day Saints. Two of the best bosses I've had. Yeah. Like, this seems to be something about the level of work ethic. Would you kind of describe yeah. similar with the way you grew up? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's a religion that attracts wonderful people. Um, there's a lot of focus on work ethic, on um, finding what your talents are and, and trying to um, kind of mine those to their fullest. Um, it's mostly a really intelligent uh, religion and, and supportive and, and lovely. Um, it was, yeah, it was it was a a wonderful aspect of my growing up in my home. We kind of had that was important, and also the arts were important, and um, so those two things hand in hand were a really really lovely way to to grow up. Um, yeah, 
you know, I am not currently like a full practicing member of that church, but um, it gave me a lot of really positive uh, things as a, as a kid. I imagine some of the work ethic would help you because acting is so known for rejecting rejection. Was there any yeah. early moments in your career? Like, how did you know that, okay, I'm really gonna make a career out of this early on? I definitely was told no, my fair share, but I was told yes enough that it, it kept me feeling like it was a possibility. Mm. And, um, and I just, I liked the kind of life that I was able to build, even in the pursuit of this career. I'm a, I'm a goal setter. I, I feel like I'm always my best self in pursuit of something. Um, there's some really cool study that said that actually the pursuit of something brings the most opportunity for joy, even more than the getting it, mm. right? Just like the small victories along the way are really growth and joy promoting. Um, and I, I love the people I was spending my time with. I love how the whole world is your education. Everything you learn for a part, for a whatever, also helps you grow as a person. You, you have to look at yourself. You have to look at interactions between people. Why, like the motivation for people's behavior. Um, you look at empathy a lot. I think uh, it's one of the most interesting parts of, of this job is, you know, if everyone could kind of um, absorb empathy into their personality, the world I think would look very different. Mm -hmm. And when you're studying for a role, you have to live in empathy for that person's experience. Um, I don't know. I, I just, there was, there was nothing else I could imagine doing which would provide all of those things and be really fun to do. So I just there, kept going. Was there, you, you're known for a lot of TV work early on. Was there a certain role where you felt like pretty confident that you could make a career out of it? I mean, what, once I, um, that's an interesting question. Um, when I was first, when I first was like 20 years old, my brother, that same brother was living in Los Angeles and I spent a summer here and it was very clear at that point that Los Angeles was not saying yes to me. Los Angeles <laughs> didn't know what to do with me. I don't, it just like, um, and so that's why I headed East. And the opposite was true. New York embraced me right away. I understood that city. Uh, even if I was making $3, I understood how to like take the steps, you know? And, um, you know, and I got to, to tell some incredible stories on stage. Um, the kind of the highlight of that was when I did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf um, on Broadway with Kathleen Turner, Bill Irwin, and David Harbour. Mm. Is the four of us. And at that point, like I had been doing well, I had been supporting myself, you know, whatever. But at that point, I just thought, there's no turning back. Like it's this, you know, it's gonna be this. But then I started wondering, hmm, there's that camera thing. There's that other city across the, the country that I didn't crack. And um, I came out here, I, I started doing this and that guest stars. And then I got cast 
in a role that was supposed to be three episodes uh, on Big Love, which um, turned into six episodes and then turned into a series regular. And so once that happened, once I was like, I took a part that was supposed to be a blip and turned it into a series regular on an HBO show, I thought, okay, I, it's going to be okay. I just got to keep pushing forward. This is going to be how, you know, how I spend my life. Do you think it was kind of unique too? Cause I mean, at that time, so big loves like 2007, I imagine it, I think it was still a show, an episode a week. So they were gauging audiences love for you possibly as a character. Was that some of the conversations you had around that? They didn't really talk to me about that. They just, I knew I had been told, you know, you're being called in for, three you know episodes and then the writers were so lovely to me and um and they just they're like we're just we just feel like it's not quite done we're just gonna keep writing a little more and um and then they asked me the following for the following season they said look we not only would we like to make you a series regular we want to give you a twin sister and what I didn't know is they their intention was to kill off my original character, but they didn't want to lose me in the show. So they created a separate human being so that I could keep working. I mean, it's like the most it's the highest compliment. Um, and that was such an interesting process because they said we, we want a twin sister and we actually have no idea who she is and uh, we want to figure it out together. And um who that other person might be. Anyway, it was so fun. So it was probably around that time. I felt I feel like at one point in time, you were everywhere. There was Gangster Squad, World War Z, Sabotage. Mm -hmm. Obviously, The Killing kind of took AMC mm -hmm. by storm. Tell me about working on The Killing and kind of what that character yeah. was like. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that, that was such a privilege, uh, telling that story. Um, it was wild because, you know, my husband and I... Um, decided to have our first kid and I was on big love and I thought, well, that's just perfect. I'll have my babe, you know, I'll be do my pregnancy on big love. <laughs> and then, um, and then the, the final season of big love was going to just focus on the family. So suddenly I was out of work and expecting and, uh, you know, whatever, I got scared. Um, and then the script for The Killing showed up in my inbox. And this has happened a few times in my life. It happened with World War Z as well, where for whatever reason, I read the script, I can hear it. I can hear it so clearly. And I just, I just knew it should be mine. I didn't know that it would be, but I knew it should be mine. And I went in, I auditioned, I auditioned again a second time, then silence fell, you know, for like, I don't know, maybe a month, six weeks. And I was like, oh, I can't have gone away. That really, then they called me back. They said, we want you to test. But at that point I was three months expecting. And so I had to tell them, you know, I'm going to have a baby. All those awesome ladies were like, we don't care. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Um, so I shot the pilot pregnant. I had my little girl, it got picked up and I started shooting, shooting the second episode <clears throat> when my baby was seven weeks old. So it was like everything 
all the big things in my life, biggest things in my life happened at the same moment. And it was the most incredible opportunity for compartmentalizing. Like I just was like, survival was now I'm doing this and then I am doing this and then I'm doing this. That's how I survived that first, that first season, you know, tiny child, incredible role, uh, all consuming. Um, and I have to credit Vina's writing for it being possible because I didn't have that much time to prepare for any given day. You know, it was like 12 hour days every day. They just kept coming, but the writing on the page was so rich. And there was something about this woman that I just, I just understood on a visceral level um, that how, um, alone she felt how unable to share how, like um and Vina just handed that to me you know with his incredible story and and then of course I had Joel Kinnaman who was you know uh amazing and we became dear friends and just trusted each other so much and uh and everyone everyone involved um it was the hardest thing I think I've ever done and maybe the most thrilling hmm. What was kind of your difference of perspective of like kind of guessing to being there? Cause we've all seen a pilot and mm -hmm. the pilots usually from the mind of the writer. And then the actor has that character kind of take shape over the first season. Mm -hmm. What was it mm -hmm. like for you starting to shape that character? I mean, Patty Jenkins did the pilot. So she's awesome. Obviously. Um, I was definitely finding my way in the pilot. Um, a new show is always hard, you know, um, and knowing how much or how little to do. And there would definitely be days I would get done during the pilot shoot and think, I have no idea what I did. I don't, I actually have no idea what I did. I had to just trust Patty. But, but then, but then, you know, it gets picked up and then it's yours, of course, in partnership with the writer and in partnership with the directors. Um, Ed Bianchi did, episode two and he became one of our recurring directors he really in a lot of ways he actually shaped more than patty in some ways i think the pilot is kind of a standalone and then ed really came in and like helped shape with the style of the show ed bianchi and nikki cassell I think were two of the major directors who shaped what the style of the series was going to be and and we were also really limited by, we shot season one in seven days an episode. That's very fast, that's very rigorous. So we were forced to use the camera really intelligently because there simply wasn't time mm -hmm. for extraneous shots. And, and all of that, like along just with your own, like sitting in the skin of the person, you start to understand what the mood and tone is wants to be. And then you just start to trust yourself. That's the, the, the main thing is you just start to trust yourself and, and your fellow actors. And that show was kind of one of the first to have the, 
I don't know. Did it get canceled by AMC and picked up by Netflix? It had, it had an unusual. Yeah, it had such a crazy a trajectory. And such what, a crazy, what was your crazy. take on like kind of the? I feel like the tone changed a little bit. Maybe it went from like PG thirteen to R with Netflix a hair. What yeah, that's right. Because we it, AMC is actually um, strict about what you're allowed to do. We were super beloved season one, um, and then the audience got really mad at us <laughs> because we didn't solve the crime the first right. season. They got so mad, right? <laughs> and, you know, whatever. I, I was kind of baffling to me. But um, so then we did season two and well, anyway, AMC decided to, to let us go. And I'm so grateful to Netflix because they scooped us up and, um, and it did. It, it, we had more wiggle room with them. And I think season three is the strongest of that's the Peter Sarsgaard uh, season. And um, I mean, that, that storyline for me, that was really the, the best season of all. Um, but then we got canceled again. <laughs> and, and we, I was like standing in the woods holding a smoking gun. And so I was like, that's how we're going to end the show. Um, and, you know, Vina had always said, she's like, I don't know how I'm going to get us there, but I really want to end in a moment of hope. You know, it's been so bleak. And I'm, and now, like, and thank goodness, Netflix gave us six episodes to wrap it up. She was like, I've got six episodes to get us to hope. That's like a really tall order. But she did it. She did it. She's incredible. Um, you know what I think is maybe one of the most interesting things I learned on that show, which I just kind of like discovered in the doing of it, is that Sarah is so private, right? So she doesn't share, she basically, you know, hardly anything with the people around her. But the magic of the camera is, is that I had to learn how to share more with the camera hmm. than with the other characters so that the audience would feel more inside mm. than the people that Sarah was living with. Um, that was exciting. Is that something you can, I guess, only learn by doing? I mean, it seems I like it'd be hard to teach something like that. I think, I mean, I have sat in conversations with young actors, which I'd love to have those conversations. And I've said to them, like, use the camera as your confidant use like as your witness i think i think everyone in life we all need witnesses right that's what great teachers are that's what partners are that's what you know witnesses to um our just our life our best moments or whatever and if you think of the camera as a witness to whatever is happening um it creates an intimacy which then the audience will feel. Mm. And even like camera operators, like, like, you know, everyone in a crew is important. DP is important, every, you know, but like for an actor, the camera operators, like who's on the other side of that lens, learning how to play together is very important. We had the best a camera operator marty camera i don't remember his last name but marty was like <laughs> he was like my lifeline in that show you know yeah, yeah. 
I think about some of those you talk about, like getting canceled, your own HBO, your own AMC. Those are also like the first dramas, kind of the first one through the wall. So the audience don't know what to expect. So when you do yes. leave them hanging, it is for the greater good of overall television kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, let's jump ahead. Actually, I spoke with Aaron Zellman and Paul Lieberstein yesterday. Tell me about working with Aaron before. And then like, did he approach yeah. you first for Lucky Hank or how did it come to be? Well, um, so yes, Aaron and I worked together, um, but didn't become friends during the killing. We didn't know each other that well. Um, he was on set really just during his few episodes. Um, and just, he was only in the writer's room for the first two years. So I knew him, but, um, I didn't know him well. And the, the kind of partnership between these two guys is so magical because obviously Aaron, who is very funny person in his own right but he comes from drama world and obviously paul comes from comedy world so it's a wonderful marriage creative marriage and i actually don't know it's such a good question if they reached out about me what i do know is that the script ended up in my inbox and I had been um, hunting for a really long time for what the next thing was. And I knew I wanted it to be really different. And uh, I read it on a Friday night and fell madly in love with it and wrote an email. saying <laughs> I love it was called Lucky. It was called um, Straight Man at the time. Um, I said, I love Straight Man. And then the weekend went and I didn't hear back. And Monday morning I woke up and I said, I still love Straight Man. And um, so they were like, yeah, yeah. Oh, my team was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we've reached out. And what Aaron says is that morning when, when they let them know that I was really interested, um, he was instantly was like, oh, that this could be great. This could be super great. Um, and it just, it, it all actually was kind of a whirlwind. It all happened really fast. That was Monday. They called and said, Mireille's interested. Tuesday, Bob was in, I was spending the summer in Jersey and Bob was in New York for some interviews. So we sat down and had lunch, had a really great conversation. And, um, and by, by the end of that week, we were, you know, trying to sort out the details. And um, so it was all really, Anyway, lucky for me, it was all really um, excitingly mutual. And yeah, so I had never met Paul. And, you know, and now over the course of doing this, Aaron and I have become really good pals. And and Paul, too, I just think the world of those guys. Um, yeah. So what kind of stood out? Like, I, I was talking to the guys yesterday, and I was like, I don't know if this would have been made years ago. You think about a writer yeah. from The Killing, a writer from The Office, or doing a show together. What genre yeah. is that? Where does it go? Yeah. But what stood out about it to you? Initially, what stood out is how articulate it was. Just the just the language, even just the first scene of the pilot, where um, Hank has that monologue to his um, to his classroom. So articulate and stinking funny but also just really human like like that's what's true about real life right you're at the funeral of a friend and you end up laughing harder than you have in a long time it's like the messiness of life that um the mundane and the ridiculous and the heartbreaking things happen all within moments of each other, you know, like um, my mother passed away a few years ago and like 
I was making sandwiches for the kids because that that life goes on. Right. And and I I felt like that's what this show was trying to capture. It's just like people, just like people in their midlife and what they're scared of and what they want and what they hope for and um, and and doing it funny, you know, too. And we've we used to tell stories about real people and then we've really gotten away from that, you know, like. Tell characters based on other characters, kind of more so, I think. Yeah. Or like superhuman, you know, like I know every every character I try to bring humanity to, you know, Hannah, whatever, playing Marissa Deagler, and she's this like super spy and whatever. And I'm trying, I do try to bring as much humanity as possible, but most of us will never be in those kind of life and death situations. And it feels nice to just tell a story about like things that I actually think about, you know, Talk about playing like, I mean, these characters are very subtle to say the least. The, the, the guys told me yesterday also, like they basically want this to move as slow as it can and still be entertaining. <laughs> What's your take on that as an actress? Well, I can't think about it that way, really. So that's, that's great. They think about it that way and they, um, and they cut it that way. And, you know, so, so much of that, like the only thing I can do is, just try to be true to whatever the, the moment is. You know, sometimes we move slow in life and sometimes we move fast. And um, yeah, I don't know what to say about that. I, I don't I don't think about it like that. Tell me a little about the relationship. How do, how do you see your relationship with, with Bob Odenkirk's character on the show? Where are yeah. they at in the, maybe in the opening of the first episode? So I think they are in the right marriage. That's number one. Um, I think they've been together a really long time, 24 plus years, you know, their daughter is 24. So they've, you know, been together more than longer. Um, and many of our lives go in unexpected ways, you know, so they ended up at this college and whatever, that's a nice life. They live in a cute town. They have a sweet house. You know, it's like, they're kind of like humming along. Um, Except that Hank just keeps more, getting more and more and more dissatisfied. And I think um, there's this incredible book. Well, I'm not going to remember the author, but it's called The Tipping Point. And it's like that thing of like how things can just roll and roll and roll. And then in society or in whatever, there's like the, this, you know, thing that just then. And there's something in that first episode um, that just is the tipping point and i think well i know what it is for me it's that he dangles that carrot of the job mm -hmm. and then he takes it away and it's the tipping point for lily looking at her husband and seeing there's nothing that i can actually do to lift him up out of this place he's in that's his responsibility and actually I have to look out for myself too, you know, and start asking, at least asking the questions, which I think Lily hasn't been asking, like, am I happy? <laughs> you know, she's been like, yeah, yeah, this is life. I'm with this guy. He's grumpy. He's great. He's smart. He's funny. He's, you know, drag sometimes, whatever. Um, 
Julie's doing great. She's married to, you know, a banana, but whatever, whatever. She's just been like, I think she reaches for hope and positivity and she kind of marches along. And then there's the tipping point where she just starts wondering if she shouldn't at least question, you know, is there, is there more? And, um, and if her pursuit of more might not help uh, her husband in the meantime, you know, ask himself some important questions too. So I think that's uh, Malcolm Gladwell. I'll, I'll include a spoiler here because I've seen about four episodes. So part of what you said, and we'll include a spoiler here. Part of what you just said is kind of gearing up to episode four when there is this kiss. Uh-huh. Can you talk about, I feel like you're so surprised moment to moment at what's happening. You're surprised that he kisses your character. You're surprised at how she reacts to it. And you're surprised by the final seconds of the talk me yeah. through. What does it look like on the page? How do you think, how did you think about that part for yourself? Um, I think she's in New York. She's remembering what it felt like for the life to be full of possibilities. She's having a flirtatious moment with this person who, you know, was a boyfriend. And, uh, and then he takes it the step too far. Which I love about Lily that she knows where what the lines are you know it's like all of the everything the flirtation the everything was 100 percent fine and then that was 100 percent not mm-hmm. and she's with him you know she's with so then she says the things she needs to say but those last moments they were on the page like that was that's the guys they they wrote that that in the last moment you know she smiles and i think I think even though she doesn't want Tom, she do- it's still like she hasn't been kissed, you know, like nobody's wanted to kiss her in a long time. And it's great, you know, it's great. And it's like, she's not gonna do anything about that with him, I- but just like, it's like what I was saying about like New York saying yes to me, right? and. LA saying no it was like it feels like it's like a moment of affirmation of like the the world is still there to say yes to you if you uh, are brave enough you know to figure out what you want that to look like a lot a lot of the listeners are would be novice screenwriters what makes a character stand out to you any advice for those writing some of their first screenplays how to make really compelling Mm. characters for actors and actresses Mm. Uh, point of view. I think um, point of view is key. And the writers, Aaron and Paul, I think, have um, carved out such clear point of view for each of these people. It's a pretty large cast. It's an ensemble. You've got lots of multiple characters in the same room at the same time in the English department. And if point of view isn't distinct, then it's going to be, it's going to be mud, you know? Um, And, and then of course they cast wonderful actors who took those points of view and really like embodied them and ran with them. But I think, I think that's, you know, the most important uh, starting, starting point. 
it's one of the most important things as an actor that I look for. It's like clear point of view um, about whatever my context is and where, like what's helped build that point of view, my history or, or whatever, but, and also like, yeah, just how that point of view plays into the tactics I use, the, how I pursue what I want. Yeah. That was great. Thank you so much for your time. That was wonderful. Yeah, my, Thank you for my Really appreciate it. I'm excited for you to watch episode five. Okay. That's like it's all for me the best. Okay. Yeah. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at broxwinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. If it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.